Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Paul J. Polgar about his book, Standard Bearers of Equality, America's First Abolition Movement, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2019. Dr. Polgar is an assistant professor of history at the University of Mississippi. Standard Bearers of Equality tells the story of a racially inclusive abolition movement, which followed in the wake of the American Revolution. Seeking to uphold revolutionary air ideals, these first movement abolitionists, as Dr. Polgar refers to them, sought to end slavery and prove that black Americans deserved an equal place in the country. Dr. Dr. Polgar's work reinterprets this time in America history, illustrating how some people worked tirelessly to create an egalitarian country. Dr. Polgar, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Derek. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this topic, why you decided to study it? Sure. So um, this book is the product of a revised, uh, heavily revised version of my dissertation. And um, any of those who have done that in first books know how long um, they live with a project. I've lived with this one for a really long time because the origins stretch back all the way to the beginning of my graduate work when I was getting an M.A., at the time, I had just um, uh, read um, uh, a sort of popular history account of the founding era that included this chapter on um, these debates over um, slavery in the first federal Congress. And um, I was really surprised to learn that um, Americans were debating issues of slavery and race um, in this period, because I had always sort of assumed and been taught as an undergraduate that issues of slavery and race don't emerge as national issues until the 1830s. Um, and so it, it just so happened that the graduate program that I was um, um, beginning also had a course with this documentary editing project called the First Federal Congress Project. Um, and that project had sort of documented and continued to document the First Congress. And so there I delved, I took this course and I delved more deeply into these debates over slavery and race. And I was really astounded to find that while these debates were going on in the press, there was this concerted effort to sort of make claims about the fundamental or underlying basic equality of people of color and whites. And I was, again, really astounded to, to sort of find that because I always sort of had been taught and imagined that it had been a later sort of 19th century phenomenon in the buildup to the Civil War, you know, sort of characters that are commonly, you know, um, uh, sort of taught like William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. And so this resulted in me writing a master's thesis on these debates um, in the first federal Congress. Then when I moved on to my PhD uh, program, what happened is that I had a sort of short detour into disfranchisement and Jacksonian politics, black disfranchisement and Jacksonian politics. And then I came back to sort of um, looking at the larger movement of abolitionists that um, these uh, sort of anti-slavery editorials in these newspapers during the first congressional debate were a part of. And that opened up this whole larger universe of sort of me asking, well, what was this movement? What were its origins? What were its ideals? Where did it come from? And, you know, 15 years later, um, uh, the book finally came out. So the kernel goes all the way back to my MA uh, experience and um, built after being heavily revised and developed and further explored um, is, is the book. Yeah, I think a lot of people will sort of be surprised to see how early these debates are really going on, especially as you say, you know, the way it's taught in grade school is you really don't learn about this until, you know, happening until like the antebellum period. But I think the current push in the scholarship and your book is certainly a part of this is showing how these debates are taking place 
much earlier than most Americans probably think. Absolutely. And so I think one of the things that struck me was um, your conception of what you call as first movement abolitionism and first movement abolitionist. So can you explain to us what that concept is uh, and how that stacks up against previous studies? Yes. So first movement abolitionism, um, as I call it, um, has uh, three uh, sort of fundamental principles that inspired it. Um, first was uh, this aim to um, enforce and expand emancipation laws and statutes that were in the northern states um, in the years following the American Revolution. And in doing this, as I'll, I'm happy to talk more about, in doing this, um, sort of asserting the fundamental rights of um, African Americans. Um, secondly, um, this aim of uh, first movement abolitionists and abolitionism to um, create citizens out of formerly enslaved and free people of color to sort of make a place for people of color in the Republic as citizens and to sort of strive for fundamental sort of social uh, inclusion in the body politic. And then third to go along with this and highly connected um, to the first two is this goal that the movement um, really aimed for, which was essential, and that was to overturn what they saw as sort of hundreds of years of kind of what had been before the revolutionary period, unquestioned white prejudice. It sort of doubted that people of color were sort of made for anything but slavery or um, anything but a very unequal status. And so first movement abolitionists sought to link fundamentally, ending slavery on the one hand and incorporating um, free people of color um, on the other. So that's really the essential link um, that they make that really inspires the movement. Now, in terms of some fundamentals that are important um, to sort of bring up here um, are the sort of actors, the sort of cast of characters, if you will, that made up this movement. Um, and there are really four groups. So on the one hand, you have Quakers. Okay, Quakers are absolutely essential here. Quakers had spent uh, a good century prior to the revolution in this long movement to sort of cull slavery from their uh, sect. And they are successful right about the time of the American Revolution in ways that are really important, sort of prime, I argue, um, this sort of first movement abolitionists to end slavery more widely, um, taking on initiatives like black education, trying to persuade a larger public to end slavery. Quakers are essential. They're not the only ones, however. There are also more prominent um, revolutionary and post-revolutionary era figures, some of whom almost everyone would be familiar with. Um, uh, certainly historians would be familiar with Benjamin Rush, the famous revolutionary era doctor and public figure. Um, who's highly involved with the um, Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Benjamin Franklin, who serves as more of a figurehead, but nonetheless is involved. Alexander Hamilton, who obviously needs no introduction in New York with the New York Manumission um, Society. Um, John Jay, the first Supreme Court Justice, who serves as a president of the New York Manumission Society. These and other sort of, um, if you will, like well-heeled, um, sort of well-connected, prominent public figures were also an important element of this movement. And they, along with Quakers and others in the movement, believed that the post-revolutionary era was one in which anti-slavery was part of a larger reform program that involved all of these different kinds of movements that they believed would sort of um, uh, wash um, American society of these kind of um, barbaric and kind of unreasoned institutions like slavery. However, there were two other groups that were really essential in this movement, and that included people of color themselves. Um, so there was a black leadership class in cities like New York, New York and uh, Philadelphia. Um, this included prominent figures like in Philadelphia, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, James Fortin. In New York, figures like Peter Williams Jr., Henry Sipkins. What they all shared was um, an improved status and standing during the post-revolutionary period. And what they wanted to do was to help to end slavery and improve the status of their fellow people of color. So they were also 
part of the movement, even though they did not belong officially to the abolition societies, they very much had a coalition with the abolition societies. The last group were more sort of marginalized and historically obscure people of color um, who brought, as I can talk more about, um, these individual cases of illegal enslavement to the abolition societies and really worked to enforce emancipation on the ground. And so these um, sort of individual um, people of color who in many ways are lost to us in the historical record that we can only get really glimpses of are also really important in this coalition. So obviously this is an interracial coalition and that's really important in what I'm trying to argue that these, this sort of movement involved both white and black actors. The other thing I should mention is that I focus in the mid-Atlantic region. And that's because it was in the mid-Atlantic region where you had, first of all, the two most prominent and important of these abolition societies, the New York Manumission Society um, and the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. But just as importantly, it's also in the cities of New York and in Philadelphia where you had a really dynamic and important, a really rich presence of um, free black communities. And these communities really served in many ways as the lifeblood of the larger first um, where from sort of this leadership class I've been talking about to more marginalized people of color um, who sort of helped to create this coalition through their own thriving um, sort of communities and institutions. Um, so it's the mid-Atlantic region, especially states like New York and Pennsylvania, that I focus on. Um, circling back to your uh, question about sort of um, where my depiction fits into the larger um, uh, sort of ways in which this, um, this group of actors is, is, is normally talked about, um, first movement abolitionism, first of all, hasn't been named as a movement, okay? So I'm certainly not the first one to write about societies like the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, like the New York Manumission Society, or their, um, um, you know, sort of uh, fellow Black uh, activists and abolitionists. But what's happened is that um, uh, these individual accounts, which are very important, um, of these societies and of these individual uh, Black actors, um, hasn't really put forth a clear accounting of the ways in which this coalition created a full-fledged movement and answer to the problem of how to end slavery and how to achieve basic racial equality. Now, part of the reason that is, is because these first movement abolitionists were a product of this era that's referred to as the gradual emancipation era or gradual abolitionism. And that has been depicted um, by historians in many ways as a conservative um, uh, form of emancipation. In many ways, it was halting, it was staggered, it took place over time. Um, and so it's hard then if you just sort of view this period as one of only gradual and conservative change to find and uncover this much more um, sort of concerted and cohesive fundamental challenge to slavery and racial inequality. The other thing is that the post revolutionary period has increasingly been viewed as one of sort of this, this kind of pan-white racism. And certainly racism and a rejection about the potential for black integration grows in the late 18th and early 19th century. But what's happened is that there, there hasn't been sort of recognition um, that this early period was also one where there was room for an abolition movement that would in fact fundamentally challenge racial inequality um, and slavery in this way. And so my book really focuses on trying to show how this coalition was a full-fledged movement and challenged slavery and racial inequality um, in fundamental ways so that we can see how we can sort of give it its proper place in the larger history of American abolitionism. And, you know, you were just speaking about how, you know, the American Revolution after after the American Revolution you know, you do have over time, especially going into the 19th century and forward, a sort of, you know, entrenching of white supremacy and white prejudice. But as you were just saying as well, the American Revolution does sort of open the door, or at least kind of like put a wedge in the door so that there's sort of a possibility. 
And so how are these groups, both for and against slavery, able to utilize the American Revolution? Because it really does open up possibilities, as you show, for especially for people arguing against slavery, but even for those who are arguing it um, for it. Yeah, absolutely. So the American Revolution here is is completely central in sort of setting the agenda for first movement abolitionism, in making the movement possible, but also in um, sort of creating the strategy that first movement abolitionists have. The first thing we need to do really in, in sort of understanding the revolution's effects here is to recognize that it was paradoxical. So meaning that there are ways in which the revolution creates challenges for first movement abolitionists in any kind of anti-slavery or abolitionist uh, coalition. And there's ways in which it allows for this movement to take shape and to have a real chance at success. So first of all, uh, the American Revolution creates important challenges and roadblocks in the way of any abolition movement. Why is that? There are a couple of areas that I highlight. First of all, really um, uh, essential to um, first movement abolitionists, what they identified as a real roadblock was this problem of what we call kind of small R republicanism. So, right, the American Revolution creates a republic. It's no longer a monarchy. And in a republic, the ideal citizen is one who is going to be virtuous, informed, independent, to sort of uphold government, right, now that the people at large ultimately have power, right? That's, that's the idea of small r republicanism. Um, and what happens is that those who are defending slavery say, in fact, if you free enslaved people, they are going to threaten the republic because they say, right, that slaves are, in fact, the antithesis of the kind of virtuous free citizenry that's necessary. They claim that enslaved people are depraved, they're degraded, they're dependent. And in many ways, first movement abolitionists are fundamentally sort of having to face that roadblock and come up with a way to get around it. And so that's that central idea of the of, of central strategy that first movement abolitionists have, that you have to show that that's wrongheaded, that in fact, formerly enslaved people could be just as virtuous, just as independent, just as well-suited for virtuous citizenship as their white um, Another roadblock, which is really less central to my account as first movement abolitionists, but is important nonetheless in understanding how sort of slavery is put on the gradual road to extinction in this period, is the property rights claims of slaveholders. Um, and that is that, of course, slaveholders respond to claims of um, abolitionists that natural rights are essential to the revolution by arguing natural rights to property and people are essential. And so this helps to, to ensure that slavery is only going to be put on the road to extinction, at least in the sort of macro sense, um, very gradually. Um, and so those are the roadblocks, and they're really important in, in, in sort of creating um, what abolitionists are up against and also helping to create their strategy for um, attacking slavery. It's making citizens out of former slaves. And it's also, um, I, sh I should say, um, sort of convincing and proving to the white public that, in fact, um, uh, free people of color, former slaves can be just as virtuous as their white counterparts. Now, this puts the onus and the burden on first movement abolitionists, uh, nonetheless, or, you know, you know, th this is this is absolutely roadblock. But again, they come up with a strategy that they think can get around this roadblock. Now, there are um, important positives um, that I think are much more well known about the revolution and, and what it does for anti-slavery. So uh, um, natural rights ideology, the ideal of equality really fundamentally puts slavery on the defensive for the first time in American history. So that if you're defending slavery, you have to rationalize it. You didn't have to defend it, um, at least on um, a wide scale. Whereas now, if you want to defend slavery, you have to rationalize it. So again, slaveholders and their allies often do this by, you know, turning to this idea that enslaved people are not suited for Liberty. Nonetheless, natural rights ideology and the ideal of equality does put slavery on the ideological offensive. And, you know, we see right during the revolution itself, both black and white activists drawing on revolutionary ideology, whether it be, you know, black petitioners in um, revolutionary era, New Hampshire and Massachusetts, saying that this revolutionary ideology directly, um, 
you know, applies to them um, or it be or, you know, relate to the larger um, sort of ideal of the first abolition movement that, in fact, fundamental citizenship and black underlying equality were goals that were, you know, in reach and that should be achieved. The, the sort of underlying commitment to that comes out of, in many cases, not solely or exclusively, but in many ways comes out of revolutionary doctrine. Um, one more thing, too, with the revolution was this sort of larger optimism that first movement abolitionists have. Um, and this is really important because, again, I think it's really difficult for us as historians because we know what happens, right? We know that revolutionary prom promises of equality, um, idealisms of sort of incorporating free people as equal citizens, that that doesn't actually win out um, uh, in by the 1810s and 20s and 30s, right? But of course, the actors at the time I'm looking at, you know, with this first movement abolitionism from the 1780s to say the 1820s, they don't know that. And not only do they not know that, but they actually believe that the tide of history is on their side. And they're pointing to the revolution and they're pointing to these ideals of equality and they're pointing to the fact that slavery is on the defensive and they're pointing to the fact that gradual emancipation statutes are being passed in northern states. And this sort of larger optimism really undergirds their belief that they can make former slaves into virtuous citizens, that they can incorporate people of color into the republic, that they can change the way the white public thinks about people of color to make them more accepting and to um, sort of recognize and acknowledge underlying black equality. So the revolution is key in allowing um, for first movement abolitionists to sort of be committed to these really optimistic ideals. Yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, is very important about the revolution, and you were just speaking about it, is the ways that it sort of puts slavery on the defensive, you know, even though in the long run, slavery certainly does become more entrenched in American society, the rhetoric of the revolution sort of throws a hinge uh, or a wrench in there where, you know, you could say all men are created equal, but then when you own slaves, you sort of have to figure out how to rationalize that. And then even the people who are owning slaves um, are still sort of saying, okay, eventually, you know, we should get rid of this. And so it, it throws open the door of, especially for the people, as you're saying, then to really think that this could come to an end sooner rather than later. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that that's really important. And again, I think, you know, one thing that, that was challenging for me in this project is to sort of, you know, any historian to kind of recapture a mindset. And again, the mindset of these activists, I think, is really hard for us to wrap our heads around because it's so easy for us to be cynical and say, well, we know that these ideals are kind of, you know, just ideals and that they're not going to win out. Um, uh, and so I think it's, you know, it, it was really sort of challenging, but at the same time, you know, kind of inspiring to take these ideals seriously. And earlier on, you mentioned and sort of talking about the groups that are part of first movement abolitionism, the sort of marginalized sort of, you know, lower down the rung people who are sort of bringing suits to the abolition and manumission societies and saying, you know, you know, this is this is uh, what's going on in my life. Uh you know, there's laws that might apply to this. Can you help me? And so how are first movement abolitionists using early laws like the gradual emancipation laws that you mentioned uh, to fight on to fight slavery? And how did they fare in this? Yeah, so this was cer certainly something that um, really surprised me when I really got deep into the research. Um, First of all, other historians um, didn't necessarily, um, it's not as though they didn't recognize that more marginalized um, and sort of um, um, historically obscure people of color were bringing these cases of illegal enslavement um, to the societies, but I, they hadn't sort of captured how essential this was to first movement abolitionism. So 
part of the reason that's the case is there's this real emphasis in historic, large historical narrative on gradual emancipation statutes, meaning statutes that say after a given date, um, you know, the, the sons and daughters of those born to enslaved mothers will be free at ages ranging from 18 to 20. So if you just take that and you stop, right, then you say the gradual emancipation laws didn't free a single slave. And the gradual emancipation laws were not, didn't work really immediate, immediately meaningful in any way. But what happens is that the abolition societies create these committees that um, help to enforce the uh, sort of group of other um, anti-slavery laws or statutes that are often um, passed in tandem with gradual emancipation statutes um, or precede them or are passed you know, as these statutes are, um, you know, sort of beefed up. Um, so just to give a couple of examples, in Pennsylvania in, in 1780, that law, on the one hand, sets slavery on the gradual road to extinction. But on the other hand, it also includes this, what's, what's referred to as the registra- registration clause, which states that all those enslaved people who are not registered by those who claim them as bondspersons within an eight-month period, those people who aren't registered will be considered free. Um, There's another clause that gives a six-month exemption to migrants who are coming into Pennsylvania that they can hold enslaved people they brought into the state for up to six months, but after that, their enslaved people will be considered free. By the way, George Washington famously gets around this statute by when he's in Philadelphia in the Capitol when he's president by um, sending out um, his enslaved people right before the six-month um, exemption was up. And certainly slaveholders did that. But many other slaveholders were um, sort of called out on this. And that's because people of color themselves overwhelmingly learned of these laws and they realized that they could draw on them. Um, and the same thing is, is the case in New York. In New York in 1785 and 1788, there are these laws that long precede a gradual emancipation statute that isn't passed until 1799. These earlier laws um, prohibit the importation of enslaved people for sale and the prohibition of um, uh, the sale of enslaved people out of state. Um, and so new black New Yorkers also are drawing on this. And I have to say that, you know, looking at the minutes, the, the sort of records of these committees that the New York Manumission Society and Pennsylvania Abolition Society created was just really breathtaking because you get these really brief glimpses into these moments where, um, you know, people's lives are being very much decided um, in these very dramatic ways. Um, And just to give one really brief example, um, I start um, the second chapter with this example of Lewis Martin, who is an enslaved man from Curacao, who was brought into New York in the summer um, of 1800. And um, he is then sold um, within New York and is going to be taken out of the state to Pennsylvania. But he gets word of his um, case to the New York Manumission Society, and they um, confront the slaveholder. And, and it, you know, the quote is sort of like, they took measures that, that, that were necessary to make sure that Lewis Martin wasn't um, taken out of state. I know, I'd love to know what those measures were, but we can't know. But nonetheless, there's a confrontation. Lewis Martin is given his freedom. The New York Manumission Society provides him with a freedom certificate to try to secure that freedom. And so there's these, you know, many of these really remarkable cases. And there's a lot of success when free black informants that bring these cases to these societies actually are able to do so. Really strong success. So I looked at the caseload for these committees in the Pennsylvania Abolition Society and the New York Manumission Society for the first 10 years of their existence. They go on for much longer, but I just did the first 10 years because even that brought, you know, hundreds of cases, 520 some in total. And I found a really high success rate um, for those cases that um, were ultimately clearly um, decided one way or another um, in the 70 to 90th percentile of success. Now, this isn't to say that there wasn't a lot of you know um, ways in which slaveholders were breaking laws and were abusing laws, and there was a tremendous number of kidnappings and 
illegal enslavement that wasn't caught. Okay, so I definitely want to recognize that. That's normally what historians emphasize. But I also wanted to really highlight that it's in this teaming up of, um, again, historically obscure and socioeconomically marginalized people of color with the abolition societies that really gives, in many cases, the lifeblood to the first movement, to first movement abolitionists on the ground. The enforcing of these laws, because what they're doing is they're really asserting that people of color have fundamental rights to freedom, that they are, in a sense, fundamentally um, rights bearing citizens, and that these, you know, elemental rights, I sort of use the term elemental citizenship, um, needs to be recognized. And so these cases are really, on the one hand, just fascinating to go through, but they also reveal a lot about this sort of dedication, the commitment of first movement abolitionists to Black incorporation, to Black citizenship. And speaking of citizenship, you know, you've you've mentioned it throughout our interview so far, and it plays a big role in your book, the idea of, you know, as you said, Republican citizenship, citizenship with a small r. And so what does this look like at the time, uh, you know, going a little bit more into detail and how does how do conceptions of, you know, race, racism, abolitionism all sort of, you know, mash together in, you know, what is still at the time of an emerging concept of what, you know, the status of Americans is supposed to be? Yeah. So um, I think the first thing we have to do is recognize that nobody knows what citizenship really is in this period, that, you know, it's not really until the Reconstruction period when you get, you know, the 13th, the 14th, the 15th Amendment said, in fact, citizenship is clearly given a definition. So, um, you know, citizenship is not clearly defined. Having said that, for first movement abolitionists, as I said earlier, what it is at its root is incorporation. And it is bringing um, formerly enslaved and free people of color into the republic as rights bearing, you know, members. Okay. What are the values and principles of that? Well, they are, uh, they include things like education. Um, so, um, you know, sort of the abolition societies, uh, New York Manumission Society most successfully creates um, what's called the African Free School that educates um, um, and provides sort of basic education to many um, free black New Yorkers. Other societies also create um, these educational institutions. Um, there's also sort of the larger kind of broad principles that Americans agreed upon that was important to citizens and citizenship like religiosity, industry, um, sobriety. Um, so it's sort of this kind of package of virtuous living. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, this could be really restrictive um, because, you um, it was a very demanding set of behavioral practices. Um, but from the perspective of free blacks and formerly enslaved people who um, sort of drew on Republican citizenship, it was actually potentially really empowering because what it allowed, as far as they saw it for them to do, is to sort of use small r Republican uh, citizenship as a, a proving ground to actually show to white Americans and the broad white public that, in fact, they were equally capable of a virtuous um, citizenship and or citizen, you know, citizenry um, sort of achievements um, uh, that they could, in fact, um, deport themselves, behave themselves and attain that same level of virtue um, that all Americans really celebrated as really essential to the experiment in um, a, a republic. And both black and white abolitionists in this coalition, I should say, too, subscribe to something I, called society, I call societal environmentalism. And that's this idea and this belief that um, society is kind of plastic, meaning it's sort of fluid, right? And so the people are products of their environment. Um, and in fact, Thereby, you can take someone who has been enslaved and allegedly, you know, um, is degraded and um, has sort of been, you know, inculcated in dependence, and you can completely reinvent that 
sort of person in 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 gaining freedom that they can in fact be um they can sort of um achieve um the all of the the sort of um markers of virtuous citizenship um if you sort of um vigorously kind of inculcate these principles um in freedom and it's that same belief in environmentalism small uh, uh societal environmentalism so this idea that um, people are products of their environment that also commits um, first movement abolitionists to the idea that the white public would, in fact, um, be reconditioned as well. It's not just former slaves that could be, you know, allegedly reconditioned to be virtuous, but also the white public that could be reconditioned to sort of move away from their racism and, in fact, recognize that basic equality and the basic. Um, aptitude of people of color for the same kind of virtuous citizenship as, again, their white counterparts. Um, I should say, too, that, again, um, there's a way in which certainly this program on the ground was extremely paternalistic. Um, and it, it must have felt that way um, for um, all sort of um, free blacks who were, you know, sort of um, taking on this, this agenda. And, you know, Richard Allen um, important free black minister in Philadelphia could sound just as paternalistic as, you know, um, uh, the uh, Pennsylvania Abolition Society in, in terms of like setting this agenda of what had to be achieved and sort of creating this very structured and, and, and very clear set of strictures for what was to be virtuous living. Um, and nonetheless, as I say, on the whole, I interpret the sort of Republican citizenship is, and societal environmentalism as being potentially very empowering for people of color because they saw it as a way to prove their freedom. And they believe that if they could then do that, that this would eliminate this central claim of slavery's defenders that in fact, slavery could not be ended safe, safely because allegedly people of color and former slaves could not safely be integrated in society. They say no. Through Republican citizenship, through societal environmentalism as a theory on the ground, in fact, we can show that we are as color, you know, as, as, you know, people of color and as of citizens of color in this new nation, just as capable of citizenship. And therefore you no longer can turn to that to defend slavery. Um, and so again, overall, they see this as an empowering thing, even though, as I say, it could be very paternalistic and restrictive in other ways. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to, to realize that, the ways in which black Americans are fighting for citizenship at this time, you know, as opposed to what we're usually, you know, introduced to in the antebellum period, um, you know, that has its sort of own history and struggle and, you know, possibilities. But at the moment here, as you're showing, you know, the fight for citizenship is something where, you know, there's the possibility that they could sort of, as this sort of, the status is emerging and everyone's sort of like, ah, David, we don't know what it looks like yet. We don't know how to pin it down that there's this possibility where they can really stake a claim for it, especially in the wake of, you know, these revolutionary ideals. One of the things that your book uh, introduces us to is the colonization movement. You sort of stake your history as a counterpoint to this movement that emerges in the early part of the 19th century. And so can you tell our listeners what the colonization movement is and how it is different from the first movement abolitionism? Yeah, so this is really important to the overall argument of the book. I spend really the last two chapters really focusing on the rise of colonization and the response of first movement abolitionists to it. I mean, first of all, we could have an entire podcast just on colonization um, because it's so complex of a movement. Um, what historians have found recently is that there is a long anti-slavery history to it. Um, and um, yet it's going to, as I'll talk about, really depart in fundamental ways from first movement abolitionism. So first of all, its roots go back um, really to the same period as first movement abolitionism was emerging. The difference, though, is that colonization in the late 18th century and even the early sort of dawning years of the 19th century represented sort of ideas of individuals rather than a cohesive movement with societal support. Um, and so 
For example, its roots are in places that we sort of are familiar with, broadly speaking, like Thomas Jefferson with his notes on the state of Virginia. So he famously puts forth, you know, this really vicious um, kind of pseudo biological um, claim for black inferiority. Um, what we need to remember, though, is that that whole, um, uh, you know, sort of seemingly di seeming digression he goes on in notes on the state of Virginia is utilized to defend and to account for um, uh, this idea that he's putting forth about ending slavery gradually in Virginia and then expatriating or removing free blacks from Virginia. So Jefferson puts forth one example um, of, you know, sort of early colonization. St. George Tucker, also in Virginia, another one of these members of the Virginia gentry who you know, sort of entertained the potential eventual end of slavery, he really emphasizes not sort of black inferiority as much as what he sees as kind of the all-powerful problem of white prejudice. In fact, you're just not going to be able to convince the white public in Virginia to accept people of color as free citizens upon freedom, and therefore you need to remove them from the republic. Those are important roots. We also have roots in New England. So famously, Samuel Hopkins, a Congregationalist minister in Rhode Island, he sort of sees colonization as this way to bring um, religion and Christianity to Africa to sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of spread Christianity and offer uh, what he believes will lead to an alternative to the slave trade in Africa. So he sees it in this very positive light. And it's a sort of melding of these different perspectives that eventually helps to create the context for the rise of the American colonization society. American Colonization Society is founded in 1817. And this really, I argue, brings a fundamental departure in organized anti-slavery. Prior to this time, again, first movement abolitionism was based on the idea that to end slavery, you also needed to, or that the, the strategy they had for ending slavery was incorporating those who were liberated into society as citizens. But uh, the American Colonization Society is premised on an, the exact opposite idea. Um, for those in the American Colonization Society who were, were actually legitimately committed to anti-slavery, and certainly there are those who were actually just sort of seeing colonization as a way to strengthen slavery by removing free people of color. But the Colonization Society and these other colonization societies at the state level that come after and are connected to the American Colonization Society, who are generally want to see the end of slavery, they believe that because they think white prejudice will never be overcome, that white racism, in fact, is a permanent reality in the American Republic, they argue the only way to end slavery is, in fact, to remove people of color from the nation from the Republic. And that just is at its core, a total departure from an apostasy against everything the first movement abolitions has stood for. And historians up, up to this time really haven't acknowledged the fact that there was this first movement abolitionism that was this cohesive, determined movement that preceded colonization. So when we can sort of recapture first movement abolitionism, then we can see how organized colonization, in fact, was a direct and dire threat to the first movement abolitionist formula of ending slavery and incorporating um, free blacks into society. And so we have, you know, something that you said that is, you know, pr pretty much the polar opposite of what the movement had been up to this point. And so how did black Americans react to this as they're trying to stake out a claim on the United States saying that they deserve a place in, you know, a racially egalitarian country and their vision. How did they react to colonization? Uh, so um, certainly it's a complex reaction um, just as colonization is complex. So I, I should start by just mentioning briefly that there are um, you know, free blacks who do make a coalition with the colonization society, they tend to be in upper southern states like Virginia. Um, but the um, black activists in, you know, New York and in Philadelphia are going to really uh, fundamentally reject colonization. Um, 
Here, uh, I should point out, too, that um, Black activists and abolitionists had been open to something that, you know, is more often considered emigration. Now, what was that? Well, emigration was this idea that was premised around the, the idea that, in fact, individual um, free Blacks, if they believe that white racism was just too strong. And by the way, I should say that, just briefly, that colonization begins to take hold effectively in Northern society as um, the racial climate, if you will, deteriorates, meaning that discrimination is growing, um, sort of hostility to the very presence of free Blacks in Northern cities um, like New York and Philadelphia is growing, and that prominent free Blacks as well as non-prominent free Blacks in these cities are really feeling this tangibly. So like someone like James Fortin, probably the most wealthy um, and one of the most influential um, of free blacks in all of Philadelphia in this period is an example of someone who becomes at least temporarily pretty pessimistic. Um, but even he isn't going to fully embrace colonization. And so there were people of color in these cities who were open to emigration. And examples of that included, say, Haiti, um, where there's a sort of emigration um, movement um, that includes, um, you know, uh, black people in New York and Philadelphia, for example. Um, migrating to Haiti. There's also Paul Cuffey, who's really important um, sort of free black activist. He's a mariner from New England, and he creates this um, sort of venture to Africa with this idea that, you know, he wanted to uplift Africa by, as he saw it, uplift Africa by sort of spreading Christianity and sort of, um, again, sort of like Samuel Hopkins creating this alternative to the slave trade, um, which had devastated Western Africa. Um, but Cuffey in that early movement, again, doesn't see colonization as sort of, if you will, a solution to the problem of slavery, right? So Black activists um, are not linking, for the most part, ending slavery with um, leaving the United States. Um, and so what happens is that after the American Colonization Society is founded, increasingly, um, you know, free Blacks in places like Philadelphia and New York are, in fact, going to come out against colonization in a very prominent way. Um, and so Black Philadelphians do so um, pretty early on in 1817, not long after the uh, American Colonization Society is founded. And what's really interesting here is that historians have sort of tended to interpret um, these um, uh, sort of denunciations by free Black um, Philadelphians and New Yorkers and others as sort of the creation of this new vision of, you know, emancipation and abolition that's going to help to inform immediate abolitionists who I'll talk about. Um, and in fact, it was very powerful that free blacks were making these statements, right, themselves against colonization because they saw colonization as a direct threat to their very lives and livelihood in the United States. And yet, it's also true that if you look at the rhetoric, if you look at the response of Black people in Philadelphia and places like Philadelphia and New York, they are in fact making an argument against colonization, which in so many ways is in fact asserting first movement abolitionist ideals, the need for Black incorporation and sort of an optimism that in fact, no, um, it is, is possible to um, uh, end white prejudice and for um, uh, people of color to be incorporated into the society as citizens. And um, they're sort of asserting those ideals in response to first move, uh, in response, excuse me, to the American Colonization Society. Also, um, famously in this period in 1827, there's the founding of Free, uh, Freedom's Journal in New York, um, which gives voice to this free black anti-colonizationist rhetoric. And again, if you read the newspaper, that newspaper in its early uh, sort of issues, and you compare it to first movement abolitionist rhetoric and strategy, it is, you know, very much caring forth those ideals. Um, and so free blacks are really important in coming out against colonization, and they're going to very much um, in important ways influence the next generation of abolitionists. Um, famously, people like William Lloyd Garrison, who in many cases, um, uh, sort of draw on free black opposition to colonization in calling for the immediate end of slavery. Um, 
So they're absolutely essential. But what I argue is, in fact, they're carrying forth these ideals that they had co-created with the abolition societies in this earlier period. So it's, in fact, a reassertion of already established ideals rather than the invention or creation of something that's completely new. Yeah, I mean, I really like that sort of interpretation that posits, you know, black Americans as the ones who are, you know, consistently fighting, you know, this fight and that it's the people around them who are changing instead of, you know, black Americans are sort of, you know, reacting to the changes around them, that it's really people reacting to what black Americans are doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. And, you know, I should say really quickly too, that it's worth pointing out that, um, the reason that, that it's even more important that black Americans are giving voice to this anti-colonizationist rhetoric by asserting first movement abolitionist ideals is because first movement abolitionists and their abolition societies are in fact fracturing along lines of whether to support some version of colonization or not. And that's because within abolition societies, there's this national group of abolition societies and increasingly they have to grapple with this question of whether colonization or some form of colonization is the only practical way to end slavery. I mean, it's really, again, hard for us to sort of understand that for many white activists, by the time they get to the 1820s, because white racism has grown and hostility to free blacks has grown so much, in many, in many cases, it seems as though some version of colonization, even if it's not wholesale black removal, might be the only way to end slavery in a state like Virginia or Maryland or North Carolina. And I think, you know, black activists, um, many of them or the vast majority cannot abide by any version of colonization because that's just too much of a personal affront to and a rejection of everything that they stood for and sort of a threat to their very existence. But for white activists among first movement abolitionists, there's more of this sort of philosophical debate. And so what happens is that by, you know, the late 1820s, early 1830s, first movement abolitionism among abolition societies is not speaking with one voice anymore. So that makes the fact that sort of black activists have to be the clear stewards of and sort of, you know, the torchbearers of first movement abolitionist ideals and principles ever more important because their white allies are sort of dividing and fracturing in ways um, that make um, carrying forward that message more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I find it uh, an, an interesting sort of conversation about how first movement abolition comes to an end, as you were just saying, as more, you know, not really black Americans saying, you know, okay, this isn't working, this kind of gradualist approach is not working, but more, you know, they're white allies are sort of looking around and saying, we, you know, we don't really know if this is going to work in the long run. And they sort of get disaffected with it and, you know, sort of join ranks with people who were all intents and purposes weren't really ever fond of first movement abolition to begin with. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, you know, again, it's, um, you know, it, it, it is true that there are first movement abolitionists who, you know, I, I, I call pragmatic colonizationists who sort of believed that it was possible to have only partial black um, removal and emigration and um, not necessarily wholesale immigration. Someone like Benjamin Lundy, who's really essential to the upper Southern abolitionist movement. And Lundy's someone who at the same time actually does embrace black citizenship and does embrace you know, Freedom's Journal, for example. Um, the problem is that it increasingly becomes difficult to hold that line because so the majority of white activists who are accepting any form of colonization are, in fact, under the umbrella of the American Colonization Society. And the American Colonization Society, I mean, if you read their rhetoric, you know, they're claiming, look, it's not really that you know, black people are innately inferior. It's that white prejudice can't be overcome. But if you actually look at the rhetoric, they sound as though they're almost making this pseudo-biological argument for black inferiority because they say that as long as people of color remain in the United States, 
they will always, they claim, remain degraded, depraved, unequal. They will never be able to raise their status. And so when that is the dominant rhetoric among colonizationists, it becomes much harder to sort of, you know, try to have it both ways, right? To sort of try to be open to some form of colonization, but still, you know, champion black rights. And this is where I think, you know, for black activists, it's a lot more straightforward um, that they have to come out um, unequivocally against colonization. And so, you know, we have this great book in front of us. Once again, it's called Standard Bearers of Equality, America's First Abolition Movement. And I encourage everyone to go out and buy this book and read it because it's really um, a great book to read and you're going to learn a lot. But we have this book in front of us. What might we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on now? And, you know, I know this book just came out. So if you say I'm just going to take a break right now, that is a completely fine answer. Be that, wouldn't that be nice if I could just take a break? No, um, you never take a break. You always have to look forward. Yeah, so I have a, a couple of projects in the works right now. So one of them is actually a co-edited volume that I am um, helping to put together, which comes out of the fourth anniversary um, of 1619 and that date um, of the first um, um, sort of recorded um, uh, forced arrival of people of African descent in British North America. And so that sort of co-edited volume is going to look at the 1619 theme, which is normally to sort of put forth as one that involves slavery and its legacies within the United States, and to ask what happens when we cast a broader Atlantic light, a light that brings in other nations um, and um, that brings a comparative perspective to the legacies of slavery and race in what becomes the United States. Also, in the very early, early stages of developing a second project, which I'm, you know, quite curious about. And this one really has developed organically from the first. So, you know, the, the, the book that we've been talking about ends on a pretty sour and, and, and depressing note, right? I mean, first movement abolitionist ideals, even though they're sort of being championed by black activists, have clearly fallen away, have been rejected seemingly the optimism that had ignited and sort of informed first movement abolitionism in many ways is hard to hold on to by the late 1820s and early 1830s. And yet, of course, in the years immediately following the Civil War and the early Reconstruction period, I don't think it's too much to say that the protagonists I look at, first movement abolitionists, if they had lived to that time, and most of them don't, um, they would have seen their wildest dreams and fantasies come true, right? With civil and civic equality, even if fleetingly achieved, at least engrafted into national policy and law with things like the 13th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, they would have found that absolutely astounding. And so what I want to do is to sort of re-examine the early Reconstruction years and to sort of ask the question, um, how there is a coalition that's put together in the North that actually links reunion and um, the, the, the sort of years after the Civil War and Reconstruction with having to assert and achieve Black rights. And I think Frederick Douglass, as he often does, puts this the best in the speech he gives in January of 1864. He says, look, we've transitioned to an abolition war, but he calls for what he calls an abolition peace. That is a peace in the North or in the nation that's going to involve a Northern voting public that is going to take on ideals of liberty and equality. And now, look, were those ideals uh, achieved in the long run? I mean, certainly one can easily argue, you know, racial equality um, is still has not been achieved. And yet one cannot sort of overlook the fact that in those early Reconstruction years, tremendous, um, you know, improvements and tremendous changes and accomplishments um, were made. And, and historians of Reconstruction have been, in recent years, sort of tracking um, the fall of and the end of Reconstruction, um, I think, um, rather than explaining how Reconstruction ever emerges, how a majority white electorate, unique to any society that ends slavery, links ending slavery with civil and civic integration and really interracial democracy um, in a society that's ended slavery. So, um, you know, it's a whole new um, historical literature for me, and that'll be a challenge. But 
you know, um, I also, um, you know, am really curious um, about what I'll find. Well, that certainly sounds very interesting. I'm sure once you have that book finished, we'll have you right back onto the program. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Derek. It was fun.